In all my 20 years of working with fashion brands, creative agencies, retail stores, and working on some of the most prominent collaborations of all time, you know what the most stressful thing I've ever done is? Trying to start a podcast. No, seriously, trying to get a podcast off the ground is like advanced mathematics. It's a tangled web of codes, confusing links, and algorithms. That is until the day I discovered Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. A, it is free. B, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your smartphone or computer. C, Anchor will take care of distributing your podcast for you so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else people listen to shows. And last but not least, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Thank you, Anchor. No, really, thank you. Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. From Hype Beast and Hype Radio, I am Jeff Staple, and this is the Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. The great thing about the Business of Hype podcast is that we hear from so many different movers and shakers in different industries. Some of these people sit on the main stage, while others sit just behind the curtain, making sure everything runs smoothly. And very often, the entrepreneur and the founder, they get all the shine, right? But you know what? Newsflash. Without the team captains making that ship run, that founder don't mean shit. So one of my favorite things to do on this podcast is to actually shed light on the people who keep the wheels greased. Because without them, some of the biggest names and brands that you're a fan of might not even exist. For a lot of people out there listening right now, y'all might not even want to start your own business. That doesn't mean that you can't change the world and create something to tell your grandkids about. So this week is someone you absolutely want to know and hear from. So it's no secret that one of the hottest brands of the last few years has been Fila. I actually spoke to someone recently and they were 20 years old and they thought Fila was a completely new brand. Little did they know, Fila was started in 1911 in Italy. So how does that happen? How does a 100-plus-year-old brand become the hottest brand in 2020? And I can tell you I've been to many boardroom meetings where executives of different brands are asking, what is Fila's secret? Now, I'll tell you the answer. It's not luck. It's not trend. It's not money. It is people, people. And this week, we have on the person who may be most responsible, although you will never get him to say that, he's most responsible for helping to turn Fila into what it is now. So get ready for gems galore as Fila's Vice President of Heritage and Trend, Louis Cologne, joins us on The Business of Hype. All right, so thanks for having me, man. Thanks for having me. <laughs> this is a beautiful showroom we're in right now. Right. In Midtown Manhattan. Um, so first, before we get you know too far into it, give me and the the people listening a proper introduction of of who we have in the studio today. Well, you have Louis Cologne the third, um, 
Brooklyn Bedside native, currently the vice president of heritage and trend at Fila USA. Nice. All right. How long have you been doing this at Fila? At Fila will yeah. be nine years in a couple months. Okay. So almost a decade right there. A decade in Fila. Have you been um, in footwear for for like before that? Yes. So I've been in footwear in and about because I have my own public, I have my own magazine mm-hmm. and I also had a store. So I've been in the business since about 2003. Okay. Right. So I first started with a sneaker magazine called Kick Exclusive. Okay. So Kick Exclusive, I actually sold in your store. Yes. I remember Kick Exclusive. <laughs> right. I went to your store and I was like, this is the place for the magazine to live. Right. Nope. Uh, as we ideated about what this magazine was supposed to be about, you yeah. know, your store and a bunch of other stores. Like we were literally, 20 stores in the world. Yeah, right? it was nothing, right? But it meant a lot because I was able to build something from scratch. Mm-hmm. had no idea how to be in the publishing game. Just knew if you get gritty and you research and you get it done, yeah. it'll happen, right? Like, yeah. made all my connects through the magazine, uh, got all my first learnings through, you know, working on this magazine that started from 16 pages, ended up to be almost 80 pages, I was about to say, for the people listening, this magazine was a paper magazine. Yes, paper, paper. <laughs> Pre-Instagram, pre-digital. Like, Did you even have like, did you have like an active website? Did you have a blog? We had a blog uh-huh. that we we started working on the tail end uh-huh. because we wrapped up about 2008 when the whole economy kind yeah. of went under. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the next easy progression. It was like, okay, let's take some of these stories and let's bring it onto a blog. Mm-hmm. Let's... We didn't think that the change will be this drastic from, you know, paper magazines and actually shooting photos and getting in and laying out layouts on the magazine. We never knew it was going to come this way. But, you know, we were able to do 16, no, 15 issues over over six years. Okay, nice. And, you know, proud to say that we, you know, we grinded and... Yeah. Did what we had to do and sold ads to little stores all over the place. And did you write articles too? Yes, wrote articles. Uh, got a ton of freelance people that are known in the game and still hustling. And mm-hmm. everybody had a bunch of great contributors from photography, content, and and uh, and just writers that all helped out. Right. It really wasn't something that anyone was making money on. Mm-hmm. I wasn't making any money. That's for sure. <laughs> um, but it was a you know something that we can all learn and own yeah. and have a piece of and put on our resumes mm-hmm. and uh, and just feel good and proud to do something in a, in a collective of people that were like ready to just be inspired and take on something new. Does that happen today? That that same spirit does that still happen today? Do you see in like youth culture? I, I've seen it for sure. I think I think when we look at these little brands and and little collective of, of musicians that are doing thing and selling shirts, mm-hmm. doing meetups. It just, the form changed, right? The format has changed. Right. But I think that energy yeah. and that inspiration and that entrepreneurial spirit is definitely still out there. It's yeah. just evolved a bit, right. right? And I think it's much faster. It moves a lot faster now. 100%. And, yeah. and it has to be actually a little bit more deep-rooted. It can't be so empty because uh-huh. I think the kids want to grab onto something that actually has something that inspires them, right. you know, something that has some roots. Yeah. And what yeah. was the retail store? The retail store was called Laces. It was okay. the first women's female sneaker shop. It was on Mott in Houston. Mm-hmm. So it was around the corner from Classic Kicks. Yes, Classic it was Kicks. Yep. Two blocks away from what Supreme that everyone knows now. Yeah. Um, we looked at that block strategically uh-huh. because we said, okay, there's a bunch of women's boutiques. And I knew through my contacts through the magazine that the women's piece and what the women's footwear group on the Nike side were pushing, right? Yeah. They were pushing like Python blazers and a bunch of like just higher level product mm-hmm. to really talk to that that female consumer yeah. that was looking for something that 
had a street edge, but it was also had, it felt classy and it felt clean and it felt right. new and, and fresh. Fashion, not and not Lady Footlocker. Like. Not Lady Footlocker. They wanted right. a position away from that. So mm -hmm. I actually pitched it to Sharon Polk, who was actually a product manager at the time. And then she introduced me to a bunch of people on the Nike side. Mm -hmm. And I actually opened my door with the Nike account. Wow. Yeah. So, and that came from pitching this concept working with my sister, who was an interior designer, to design this store. Uh -huh. And then knowing Will, that was at Nam de, Nam, Nam de Guerre. Nam de Guerre. Yeah. And his account was closing because they were about to close shop. So okay. I was able to parlay that to open up this shop and <laughs> actually keep the space away from other people because I positioned it differently. Right? Chess moves, bro. It has to be chess moves. Wow. You have to be opportunistic. So you saw, you saw Nam de Guerre about to close. There was yeah. about to be a hole. Right, and then you filled it with this laces concept, female right. driven, and it was it, it was um, it was it was running parallel, right? It was running in tandem where I was still working on this store, but then you know having a relationship with Will and knowing what's going on in the market, I was able to take advantage and yeah. then open up the shop. We did really well from two, we opened in two thousand end of two thousand five, mm -hmm. which was the the fourth quarter. Try to get some fourth quarter sales. Then you learn quickly how Q one, mm -hmm. <laughs> what they call taxmas. Yeah. dies really quickly uh -huh. for retail and how cold it is in New York and yeah. how the boutique game slows down. Yep. And then, you know, that spring, summer, after we had some really good PR, we were like in timeout like almost every other month mm -hmm. and we were getting people bringing in, to your point earlier about magazines, yeah. they were coming in with a timeout magazine uh -huh. saying, I like this shoe that was highlighted. Do you have it? Um, we ran a really good business, had uh, Creative Recreation, was the uh -huh. first like female store that had it, had Alexander McQueen and Puma product in there. Yeah. So really having a different proposition for the customer. Right. Um, next door were like jewelry stores and high-end fashion mm -hmm. stores. Yeah. So really putting ourselves in that world and owning the space of women's footwear offerings. It's funny because the sneaker brands, you know, I'm still in the business on the retail side as well. Right. Like the footwear brands are still trying to figure out the dedicated female sneaker headspace. Like, and, they can't and, figure it's like a riddle that they can't figure out right you hit on the head because the women's customer is way more fickle mm -hmm. right they're ready to move on much quicker what i've learned working at fila is how the 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 male consumer mm -hmm. once you have them as a brand you become part of their brand assortment right yeah. once you get into their closet mm -hmm you're in their closet, right. right? They might always go to the same thing. Mm -hmm. They might not try the freshest, newest thing. But in the male side, you're like in Loyalists. there once you're in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. On the female side, they have, they've had so many options mm -hmm. on footwear specifically. Yeah. And Even the, the silhouette, not just yeah, yeah brands, but and, like. And they move. They just continue uh -huh. to move. So the challenge for brands, I think, is it's, it's more challenging for brands to, to address the female consumer. But it's actually the reward is much bigger, right? Yeah. If you look at that Fenty Puma run and if you mm -hmm. look at what we're doing now with Disruptor run, like you can have an enormous growth in the female space and the women's space if you address it right, right, you come correct with the right looks, the right style, you're on trend, you have some authenticity in the space, you're mm -hmm. not just faking it to make it, yeah. right? Um, and then you bring out the right product and you have the right retailers that you partner with and then once you do that, boom, they're on it. Yeah. And they they love you. They're, they're, they're there with Absolutely. you, right? Absolutely. So I'm going to assume that because you started a magazine, you founded a sneaker magazine back in the day before Instagram that made no money. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you were a sneakerhead from birth. Right. Well, <laughs> I, I would say, well, sneakerhead, that, that, that title has 
moved around. Oh, them totally, out, right? totally. Like, we need sneakerhead. to redefine sneakerhead. Right. What, what, like what year? What era are you from? What, what I'm, year you I'm 39, so I'm a 90s kid okay. all day. Right? right. Like, and you grew. You were born in where? born in Bedside, Brooklyn. Lived there my whole life. My family's been there for 70 years, probably. All right. Um, so Bedside in your veins. In my vein, like I'm three blocks, two, three blocks away from Marcy Projects. Mm-hmm. So. I clearly remember Jay-Z coming down Nostrand Avenue in the GS yeah. where I was just like there. Like seeing him. Seeing him drive by. <laughs> and I remember Memphis Bleak just hanging out in front of, in uh-huh. an Escalade in front of the projects. Right? Right. Like I remember this. I also remember that, uh, this is one of my favorite stories, is that Clinton Hill, Bed-Stuy was where Big was from, right? Mm-hmm. So when Big passed, we came home, we found out on the news on the radio like everyone else. Yeah. Um, my dad's a retired firefighter, right? Mm-hmm. So every other day he worked 24-hour shifts. So I used to help him bring in the groceries. So one day he comes home pissed. I've been in this traffic for effing hours, blah, blah, blah. I've been on Fulton and, and Washington Avenue. You won't believe all the traffic I've been in. I was like, wait, Pop, you on Fulton, Washington? He's like, yeah, I went to get groceries. I was like, Dad, you at Biggs' uh, funeral procession. <laughs> He had no idea. Wow, he was just he had mad. no idea. He was just mad to be stuck in traffic. Right. He's like, there's people in the street having a party. And then that became the infamous video yeah. of the procession coming down and where mm-hmm. they shot all the videos and all this photo content that they have of Big. Yeah. And my dad was right there. Right. <laughs> so I've always been somewhere in that world, yeah, yeah. right? Those guys are much older than me and I wasn't a part of that scene. So when but, you say sneakerhead in this era, what do you mean? I mean that... It was ingrained in us, right? Mm-hmm. Like sports, music, fashion, sneakers yeah. was a part of us growing up in New York City, right? Mm-hmm. As a bedside, that's what you knew. Like, yeah. I remember being in elementary school wanting sneakers, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I could tell you, I wanted the CB4s. I wanted the Barclays. I wanted this. I wanted all these different shoes because we grew up with it, right? Yeah. Like, it was a part of our world. Yeah. So being a sneakerhead... Uh, quote unquote, I, I can't, I can't, I can't say that honestly. I just know that we were like mm-hmm. in it, right? It's like right. being a foodie, but your whole family cooks food every day, right? Yeah. And you just been, you just been eating great food your whole life, and to be like, oh, I'm not a foodie, right? But I've just been doing it my yeah. whole life. So that's kind of the way I see it. But the entrepreneurial side of being a sneakerhead, I think, is what's evolved, mm-hmm. and that's something that I know I've been a part of. I could say I could attach myself. So I see kids today how they're flipping sneakers and doing that. I had a different way of being an entrepreneur in the sneakerhead space by having the magazine and having the store. Yeah. So that was my POV and my unique turn of when we quote unquote say sneakerheads. Right. right? Where'd you go to school? I went to school in St. John's Prep in Queens. Uh So I was like one of the only kids going on the G train to the (laughs) N train every day for an hour and change. Yeah. Every day. Right. And I was the only one getting off at Bedford and Nostrand. <laughs> but it, like my, my, my mom and my dad were like, you're not going to public school. You're yeah. just not. Like pick a, pick a high school in the city, but, uh, you know, a Catholic school. My mom wanted me to go to Xavier. There were way too many dudes. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went to St. John's Prep and there was this whole diverse world of every flavor. You know, Queens is the most yeah. diverse borough. Yep. So you had all these people, all these new people. And I was like, I'm going here. I don't mm-hmm. mind taking the trip. Right. And obviously you're a little, you're a teenager and you see all these girls and they're all new to you. Yeah. 100% that's where I'm going. <laughs> Where'd you go to college? I went to college in Northeastern University in Boston. Okay. So I was up there for a couple of years, met some great people, had some, had a blast up Majoring there. Majoring in what? Uh, business actually. Okay. In entrepreneurship. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. So. Was the magazine in the store after college? After college. Okay. But so I was a, I was a college dropout. So. Oh, you didn't graduate? Didn't graduate. I, I Did left after year ever? two. No. There was no need. 
<laughs> I left stay in, stay in school, kids. <laughs> yeah, stay in school, do the right thing. But, you know, in Northeastern, you had this program that was called the co-op program. Mm-hmm. So every six months you work and then you go to school. Okay. And you get credit for the work. And you get credit for the work. You also get paid. Okay. <laughs> so getting paid mm-hmm. was like, wait a minute, getting paid is pretty good. Yeah. And I'm getting paid well. Right. Right. In the Boston area, though? In the, in the Boston area. Okay. So I was working at like John Hancock and a couple other places. Okay. So you do this every six months and you flip and you do, do class. So... After I was like in finance, I was like, I could do this. I don't need to finish school in, in Boston. So uh-huh. I went back home and then I worked in finance for like a year and change. Was it harder because you didn't graduate? No. Really? No. Just uh-huh. connect and hustle? Yeah, connect and hustle, man. I, I, think, I think the college degree is definitely great for people's maturation. But once you're ready, mm-hmm. once you're ready to go into the world and... And, and know what you want, yeah. then you just get out there and do it, right? You know, I often compare school, particularly college, to almost like a buffet at a restaurant when you don't know what you want to order and like invest in yet, right. but you're, I'm going to try some pasta, some steak, some sushi, some soup, and you don't know yet. And then the next time you go back, you're like, no, I'm not going to do the buffet. I'm just going to, I know what I want. Right. And school is great for like sampling shit. But once, as you said, once you know what you want, school is like, eh. You got to just get out then. Right. <laughs> and, and it also depends where you grew up to. Yeah. Like we grew up in big cities where mm-hmm. we have big networks that extend yeah. into large That's networks. True. I think the opportunity for somebody that comes from a solar town to go to a big school in a big, in a big city. Exactly. It's great, right? right? You get to learn that world is all fresh. Like going to Boston was like going a step down, right? Like <laughs> even though Boston's a great city, mm-hmm. it wasn't as fast. Yeah. It wasn't as immersive as New right. York City right. was. I mean, we're doing the craziest stuff when we were teenagers in right. New York City, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was actually a time for a me to thing. Yeah. tone down, yeah. right? Yeah. And, <laughs> and get together and get focused and figure out what I want. You still uh-huh. have fun, trust me. Right. You have fun. But it was never, I didn't have that experience from small town to big city, right. big college that other people may yeah. have had, right? Which I think is great. And mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. Your own, right. Depending on where you come from, maybe the college is the most culturally innovative forward place. Right, yeah. right. It definitely is. I right. mean, you get to experience, you know, we have a Nick fan and a Giant fan and mm-hmm. a, a big, we have big teams that we celebrate, right? Yeah. If you look at New York, what do we have? St. John's University? Mm-hmm. We don't have any New York City college Campus teams. Campus life, no. No, you don't. So you got the NYU Violets. Like, yeah. <laughs> you got the Manhattan Jaspers, so yeah. shout out to them, right? <laughs> um, but there isn't like this big college life because no. you kind of experience it already mm-hmm. in your everyday life, right. that that maturation of yeah. becoming an adult, right? right? You're like forced to do it, mm-hmm. right? You're forced to get on a train by yourself when I'm 13 yeah. and go to Queens every day. I don't know if somebody else could do that if they were just teleported into mm-hmm. my world, right. right? Totally. So, you know, college is what it is. And I think it was great. I have relationships with a ton of great people that I still love that I met then. And, yeah. and it's great. I think it's great, but it's to each his own, right? Mm-hmm. What was your, outside of like the magazine and the store, what was your first job in a footwear company? First job in a footwear yeah. company? So if we were to fast forward the mm-hmm. story, I uh, had the magazine, was running the magazine after I opened up the store. Mm-hmm. I was running the magazine out of the basement. Okay. I had my brother running that as well. That's dope. And I was upstairs working where I was in the store seven days a week, mm-hmm. opening it up at 10, 11. So I was happy I could wake up in my own time. Yeah. And then closing the store at eight, right? Uh-huh. It didn't matter if I got one more sale for... To, if I kept it Absolutely. till nine, because one more sale make it makes a difference, yeah, right? Yeah. And I'm downstairs anyway. Right. So I still have to get this quarterly magazine done. So uh-huh. I might as well keep the doors open. Yeah. Right? I heard the bell go off, go upstairs. Hey, how you doing? 
wanting shoes, right? Right. <laughs> um, 2008 happens. And basically... You mean the financial crisis. Financial yeah. crisis hits. And what my unique, prop, my unique product that I was selling in my store was now at Michael K's. It was at Broadway. Mm-hmm. It was all over. Mm-hmm. It was at Transit. Yeah. And it was at deep discounts. Yep. Because I got lucky because I was looking at the Nike website to see what inventory they had mm-hmm. and product that other stores couldn't sell, I could. Yeah. So I was actually getting a discount. I was getting like 80% margin on some of this stuff, uh-huh. right? Like snakeskin and premium leathers and all these unique stories. I was actually doing a bunch of good projects like World Cup mm-hmm. with the Nike team, yeah. doing exclusive bags. And like they were throwing me the bags for free to to have it in the store. Mm-hmm. also did an Air Rift campaign for the 25-year anniversary. Okay. Like we were doing like- Like really marketing initiatives too. Marketing yeah. initiatives right. through that, right? So it was like- it was fun. Yeah. It was exciting. It was getting my eyes and getting my reps in into that world. Mm-hmm. Lou is an OG to the game. He comes from a time when some of the best New York shops were around and some of the dopest sneakers were dropped. On the low, there was no Tier Zero, no Quick Strike, no Sneakers app. He's seen and experienced firsthand the shift from the early to mid-2000s all the way to what sneaker culture is today. It's an industry that's changed through technology, reselling, and a new generation who will be the ones that determine what is hot out there. But as the owner of the old Laces Boutique and the Kick Exclusive magazine, he brings such a valuable mixed experience to any table. I used to love Kick Exclusive. It was dope. And that's why we carried it at Reed Space. Now, some may say that Lou's experience is non-traditional, But the important part is that in any experience or situation, Lou has the distinct ability to take away valuable lessons and insights to inform what his next step is. Whether it be product trends, buying or editorial concepts and more, Lou's diversity allows him to add a unique perspective. Now, this is important for someone trying to find out what that next step is, whether it be a new job or starting a new endeavor altogether. You should take all your experiences that you've had, good and bad, and think about what drove you, what made you feel like a winner, what killed your spirit. Really assess everything so that you can learn from it and apply that to your next move. Now, if gaining more experiences is what you think you need, consider John Jay's advice from our past episode. He said, you need to just go out there and try it out. You'll at least learn something about yourself at the very end of it. Two thousand eight happens. I had to get to a point where I'm just losing money. Yep. Right. Um, I had two properties. I had the magazine. I have debt from every which way I could look. Yeah. My phone. My phone was just blowing up with just debt collectors. Yeah. And basically, I had to close up. Mm-hmm. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done because yeah. you attach your pride to that, and I was so attached to building this and being responsible mm-hmm. for people that were a part of the store and the magazine and everything and not disappointing family and, you know, but I was also very young, right? I was in late 20s, mid to late 20s. You closed both at the same time? I had to close both at the same time. Damn, that is tough. Right. Not two, not one business, but two together. They And and they were at that point in tandem, right? Because one had a hub under the other. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right? Like I was running the, the store and then, you know, running a magazine, no one else wanted to, no one wanted to spend thousand two thousand dollar cheap ads with me right and how could i tell anybody who's selling ads to continue to work on this when 
everybody's pockets were hurting, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So 2008 happened, had to do that. Lost houses was basically in total debt, probably 500 to, you know, $700,000 in debt. It was insane. And like, I'm like- Just in debt to, like who? Brand? Like remember, brands? I, had, I, lost the, I lost the houses. Yes. I had credit card debt. I had oh, debt. You, where were the houses? The houses I bought two investment party, two investment properties in Colorado. Oh, okay. So not the smartest and they thing. Lost, they lost money. Yeah, lost everything. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I lost that. And I had credit cards against the store mm-hmm. and I had inventory mm-hmm. and then I had rent due, mm-hmm. right? You have electricity bills and yep. all that. So lesson Prima learned. bills. Yeah, it, it's everything. <laughs> everything. It, everything just, it just starts collapsing on you, right? Yeah. The house of cards just starts falling. Uh-huh. Um, learned a lot from that though. Mm-hmm. If I could look at hindsight, I'm, I'm 11 years out from that moment. Yeah. And, you know, all of that. And we talked about education. Mm-hmm. All of that got me to my, basically my master's in that business, right? Hell yeah. Right? I, I got to my master's. I still didn't get my doctorate in any of this stuff, but I got at least from that something. Um, felt like depressed and felt all these crazy emotions of losing everything. And then I started working with like DJ Soul and a bunch of guys just to do parties and just pay rent, right? Because oh I still God. have my own rent to pay, right? <laughs> to live. Yeah, yeah so you, still you just- have to sleep somewhere. So I've just like started party promoting in wow. New York, right? Because I have this base of people that I know of through the store through and the, the magazine. Yeah. And it's like, why not, right? right. Uh, so we started doing that and I was, you know, to borrow money from family just to pay cell phone bills and just keep it going. And then I just started saying, okay, I'm giving myself a time limit to really be in this footwear industry. If everything I know- I can do is real, uh-huh. I have to put in the work, right? So I started just researching. I would go through every company website, look at every HR page. I would be on Indeed every day looking for jobs with the keywords of footwear, mm-hmm. production, development, sales, any of that. I was like, mailroom at Puma, I'll take it. Uh-huh. Mailroom at, at Reebok, <laughs> I'll do it, right? Janitor at Adidas, l- yeah. let me just get in, right? Yeah. Like, I just got to get in because I don't come from the world where somebody in my family was already in it and can right. say, okay, let me find an opportunity. Mm-hmm. There's some low-level job you can get. Yeah. So, And you weren't like six years of like footwear industrial designer either. No, like, yeah. no. No technical design experience. Mm-hmm. It's really like being a consumer, converting my consumer knowledge to actual practice of being an entrepreneur. That's what I know, but how do you write that on paper? Right. Like you, you, a resume doesn't show that, mm-hmm. right? You have to show examples of what you've yeah. done, but then you show everything you've done and you'd be like, oh yeah, but by the way, I closed it and lost it all. Right. All right. So but like, it's also an interesting hybrid because you knew the buying, selling, retail but because of the magazine, you knew the marketing and like editorial Correct. side of things too. But it's almost like being a jack of all trades is a double-edged sword. Yep. Because when you're looking at Indeed and what's the other one, Monster.com, Monster, yep. you can't be like jack of all trades. No, you have to be like sales, right. marketing. Right. Yeah, that's it. Product design. Right. Development, right? Uh-huh. And that's one of those one of those little words like development. Like I had to research what that even meant, <laughs> right? Like. You just thought it was just like a product manager and uh-huh. a salesperson. Nobody really understands, and I didn't understand, to mm-hmm. be honest, the nuance of all the details and all the different responsibilities and jobs within the footwear world. Yeah. Right? Like kind of when you come from it, mm-hmm. you get it because you're like, oh, of course there needs to be a color person and, right. a, and a product strategist uh-huh. and a developer and somebody right. who does Trims, outsoles and tools. <laughs> like there's a trimming person. When like. you're in it, you understand yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Because you start understanding the nuance of it versus just being a consumer mm-hmm. and understanding the end product okay. and how you receive it. So I had to learn that. Mm-hmm. 
so, so fast searching. some searching 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 um saw an opportunity at new balance mm-hmm. there was someone who was on maternity leave and they had a job open from six months to a year mm-hmm. applied for a product developer at pf flyers because they own pf flyers yeah. um actually got the job mm-hmm. but it was in boston right so you got to go back to school i like, had to go back <laughs> to, to boston yeah so you went i went okay but reason why i went remember i'm, I'm dead broke right mm-hmm. i'm dead broke yeah. i'm in debt i have no idea how to even pay my bills mm-hmm. i'm doing parties for cash because anything else will get garnered like they'll take they're garnishing the my tax. wages yeah, right yeah yeah so one of my good friends dauda was managing um clinton sparks and was in new york and la and in vegas he had his own spot he had his own car he said if you come up here take over my apartment you can take my car i'm only here once twice a month okay so you could live rent free rent free okay so i was able to great friend like honestly that's the relationships i think relationships are always key in our growth and how we become who we are and took the job Mm -hmm. knowing it was temporary hopefully i could you know, make my way to make it permanent, right? Yeah. Like figure out, not even knowing if they're on a hiring freeze, how the yeah. business is doing. I'm just trying to go in positive. Like this is opportunity, I have to do it. Before that, I was just like, do I become a fireman? Do I do I uh-huh. go back to finance? What do I do? Like, yeah. I'm giving myself a, a deadline. That is, I got to say, that is desperation. You moved out of New York to go to Boston for a maternity leave position that could have ended like in four months. And, and it did. Right. Oh it, my God! It, really? it, was, it was ending, right? Yeah. And I was trying to apply to stay right, on to board transfer somewhere, right? And I and I didn't feel so positive about mm-hmm. figuring out because once you get there, you get the reality of it. Like there's people that are employed here, like they have to make a position for you. It's a lot more complicated than just saying, "Can I stay, guys?" Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so then I found I, I started looking again, and I said, "Okay, this is." This, this 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 is about to expire. Mm-hmm. Found this position, and I actually found the feeler position. Okay, so I started looking again. I back like, in New York. Back in New York. Wow. But I, I went through the same process. Monster, Indeed, uh-huh. going to every brand website. Yeah, this was like I'm looking up Levi Footwear. I'm looking up every right. footwear. But <laughs> did not care. Did not even know that like that was a licensee. I just say, how do I get there? Yeah, yeah. I, I know so much more now that I could go back mm-hmm. and be like, I could have helped you out ten years ago, kid. Right? <laughs> like you're just flying blind, flying blind. Yeah, right? Yeah. And again, like who who do I tap on the uh-huh. shoulder to be like, how help me? Like, right. I, I want to learn. I want to listen. But I just didn't know who to talk to. Um, so you landed at Fila. That's a good. I yeah. mean, actually, it's easy to say now that that's a good place to land in, but back then, it was just whatever you could get. Right. Hundred percent. Yeah, it was like the, Fila back ten years ago was not Fila today. Just so kids know, it took a lot. It was not the same brand. <laughs> no. So describe Fila when you arrived. So when I arrived, I met with the development team. There was a development job. So mm-hmm. at least on my resume from New Balance, mm-hmm. I had at least six to eight months of development knowledge. Yeah. Right. And they were looking for a lifestyle developer. Mm-hmm. This is when we were, and not in this office, but our previous office that we grew out of, and now the space we're in now. So met with a development team. They liked me. We hit mm-hmm. it off. But the end person I had to talk to was John Epstein, who was the president of, who was the president of Fila. Yeah. Um, sat with John. Mm-hmm. We went from talking a little bit about sneakers to ended up talking, I would say, about the position. We probably talked 10 minutes about the position it was. Yeah. And we just talked about music, hip hop, sneakers, things that are going on in mm-hmm. the culture. Yeah. He was that guy, right? Like yep. he just storytelling. Young guy, I want to know what yeah. is happening, right? Yeah. Like I didn't get it then, 
Uh-huh. I just thought this guy was, all right, this is the boss and he's cool, cool. with me. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm cool because this guy's cool with me, right? <laughs> um, then they offered me the position and I easily accepted. I said, yes. Uh-huh. Did not even think about where where the brand was standing in the market, what the right. consumer thought. I thought it was just another next step mm-hmm. to get in, pay my bills, yeah. being being an home. industry yeah. that I know, right. and have that safety net of being at home. Yeah, yeah. So growing up in like going backwards, growing up in Bed Stuy, like people are like, oh my God, you grew up in do or die Bed Stuy. But I always had the safety net. Like I always had a big family. Mm-hmm. I've always felt protected. I've always had a, a, a plate yeah. of food to eat and somewhere to stay. Right. Yeah. So coming back, even taking the feeler job and kind of starting from scratch again. Still felt safe, and I felt like I could take what I know. There's this guy who's the president that just right kind of likes me, right? Like yeah, he, yeah. he's he embraced me, like like I've never been embraced by any president of any company <laughs> that I've ever met, right? And I probably at that point have never met another mm-hmm. president of another company, right? <laughs> yeah, um, maybe the president of the owner of a, of a bodega, of a bodega, but right. that was it, like <laughs> yeah, not yeah. a footwear brand, yeah, right? Like I never got close to meeting the the top. C-suite level at New Balance, even mm-hmm. though I was there for a small flight of time. Yeah. So, you know, long and short, got there, mm-hmm. started working on development. Um, after about a year or so, I had a bunch of projects I was working on, working on lifestyle stuff. Started to understand the business yeah. after being in it for mm-hmm. a little while. Um, knowing that our market, which is, you know, youth culture market, was totally underserved. Yeah. I still had that entrepreneurial burn in mm-hmm. my stomach to say, we have to do something here. So I proposed to John, John, can we bring back the Grant Hill too? Mm-hmm. Bring it back in two colorways. I have a list of retailers. Mm-hmm. I also have a connect to Yuming at Sneaker News. Mm-hmm. And I have a connect at Hypebeast. And I have all these people that I've met and cultivated relationships with over the years. Yeah. I also called one of our reps that's still with us, Anwar. I said, Anwar, I'm pitching this to John. Can you, you're the sales rep, but I have a bunch of stores. If you could do the sales rep part and I just get you the stores, can you do it? He's like, oh, 100%, let's mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. Pitched it to John. John believed in it. He's like, let's do it. Yeah. Bought the pairs. So we bought 2,500 pairs of each shoe. Mm-hmm. Said, Lou, this is on you. These expensive you shoes these, yeah. that land expensive, and you, we got to move these, right? Mm-hmm. He took he he took uh, honest try with me. Yeah. So we went there. The day of the launch, our back office and our customer service is down in Sparks, Maryland. He was in Maryland for the day of the launch because we set a launch date. We gave photography to uh, all the websites. Mm-hmm. We had the store list, the whole deal, and people were thirsty for. Another retro. Remember all yeah. that? In 2010, think about all the Reebok retros, all mm-hmm. the retro basketball stuff. Basketball's still hot. He goes and he was like floored because there were thousands of calls that day yeah. of people asking where to buy these shoes. Mm-hmm. So that scarcity model, that that search, that discovery model right. was proof in the pudding, right? Mm-hmm. Like he had it. He was like, oh my God, Lou, I can't believe you're right, <laughs> right? You can't believe yeah, you're because right. He didn't know intrinsically about the hype beast, like Freshness Mag world. Did not know. Right. Freshness he, Mag is a great one. Yeah, yeah like, like he had to just trust that you knew what you were doing. Right. He knew what he had to build. Because remember when he, when they, Chairman Yoon and John took over the brand in 2008 mm-hmm. was when I lost everything. So if you look at that, yeah. that timeline, they bought the brand because the brand was losing almost a million dollars a month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not so they, they bought it. <laughs> 
in the red. Right. Right? They bought it totally in the red, and they built the brand uh-huh. by what we call the sports out line and yeah. the family channel right. line. So they rebuilt the brand. To be by, profitable. To be profitable. Right. Move the units that were sitting in, in our warehouses mm-hmm. and get them out and sell them to what we still have great partnerships and relationships with, which is what we call the family channel. Yeah. Right? So you have price point business. Somebody's looking for a product with the brand on it that's trend relevant and and recognizes the heritage of this brand, right? Just recognizes yeah. that it's a credible brand. Right, exactly. They have no idea about the Italian roots mm-hmm. or, you know, the sport history or the hip-hop connotations. Yeah, yeah. No idea. Right. They just say, there's a value. Mm-hmm. It's in a store that I trust. Yeah. It's thirty nine ninety nine. buying it, right? right? Right. And it's your mom going to the supermarket or your dad going to, you know, the hanging out on the store. weekend yeah, or yeah. something, yeah. right? So that's how they rebuilt the business mm-hmm. and afforded the opportunity for me to then come back and say the leveraging of those um, manufacturing capabilities yeah. and those um, places we could actually make this run of, uh-huh. Heat of product. Grant Hill products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's funny how it goes hand in hand like that. People don't realize, but you can't ask a factory to do like a, a relatively small order if you're not feeding the engine of that factory with something else. Of course, they they lose money. Yeah. by doing a small run. Right. Right. Like they lose twenty five hundred pairs is kind of a pain in the ass for them. hundred <laughs> percent. They're looking to do twenty five hundred pairs in a week. Yeah. Right. Of just regular product and right. just getting it out and just. Mm-hmm. Being official on uh, efficient on that model right. of just keeping that line going, yeah, yeah, because that's what these factories are built on mm-hmm. that line process, right? Yeah. You handle the vamp, next person handles the stitching, next person handles the lacing, next person glues the bottom. Right. That process of they everyone just want to keep it going, yeah. Everyone knows one singular thing, and they just keep it going. Mm-hmm. If you want to do pretty museum items, twenty five hundred pairs, that stops the whole machine, yeah, right? right. And then they start to lose money, which mm-hmm which is never good for anyone. Right. So you also have to think about when you're doing 2,500 pairs, you also got to think about the investment you're putting into outsoles, right? Mm-hmm. And you're putting into buying materials. Yeah. And you're putting into all the details that go into 2,500 pairs. Right. So when everybody thinks about limited edition this and that, yes, they cost more, but there's a, there's a reason for that, right? Yeah, there's yeah. a reason and there's a process for it. So sure, you could find a small... Italian, you know, factory somewhere to mm-hmm. do a hundred pairs. Yeah, but the efficiencies, the efficient model is to actually go get a factory to produce this stuff and right. make sure it happens. Were you scared that you were going to be eating those twenty five hundred pairs of Grand Hills, or were you a hundred percent confident these were going to move? I've always been a confident person. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been a confident person, and you know, you you honestly gain more confidence when you have somebody like John. Yeah. That has your back, mm-hmm. right? And you know if you've done your career and what you've learned um, and the lumps that you've taken yeah. get you back in that ring. Mm-hmm. So even if it didn't work, I would still push it, right? Right. Because I knew that inherently it was the right way and the right thing for us to do. Yeah. So that business grew and John said, wait a minute, this is an opportunity. Uh-huh. And he's a commercial guy, right? Yeah. And I'm still trying to be cool guy, do it small, limited, yeah. and get it out there. Let's do another color in five months, and then we could do a collab, right? So mm-hmm. I'm saying, I'm pitching all that stuff. He's like, no, 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 no. We're going to turn the volume up on this one. We're going to do 20,000 pairs. Let's get five colors, and let's go to every retailer and sell these out. <laughs> and you're like, no way. I'm like, no, don't do that. <laughs> you're yeah. going to kill it. So we had a good little run on that mm-hmm. first, uh, first run, and it was about a year and a half, two-year run, and then- 
we got to a ceiling and we had too many pairs in the market and we had too little stories and we had we didn't have any leverage with the relation with the relationship of the retailer to continue to buy more stuff from us. Yeah, we only had that one high, hot item, mm-hmm. right? And they want you when they want you, and then when they're done, yeah, thanks for playing. We'll take your call, but right, you don't have anything else for me. Yeah, you got a lot more work to do. So, I, honestly, I'm actually happy that that happened. I was initially like pissed, like, uh-huh. John. I had something you ruined it. Blah yeah, blah yeah. blah. Then now looking back, it was like okay, we I needed to learn that. Mm-hmm. So now I went from my master's yeah. and now I'm in full getting my doctrine in this mm-hmm. business hands on, right? Yeah. Like I'm in, I'm in it and I'm seeing the wins, losses and all the intricacies of the, bu- of the business and right. building this. But I'm also saying we need to continue to look at what our North Star is and where we need to go mm-hmm. and then figure out the process, how we get there. Yeah. Because it's key to figuring those pieces out and where the opportunities are that we can win as a brand, mm-hmm. right? And how can we storytell? Yeah. How can we bring more product? Because the goal started with one mm-hmm. men's shoe, and the goal was always we need full family. We need to be able to talk to men's, women's, kids, yeah. infants. We need to be we need to have a balanced business because the balance of the business, you don't have that from anyone. Mm-hmm. You don't have anyone offering accessories, apparel, and footwear as evenly distributed as we are mm-hmm. between all genders. Right. And that's always been the goal. And we got to a great place right now where we're there. Yeah. Um, and we're continuing to push that, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's our point of difference in the market. We're looking at, uh, you know, you people ask why would Fila do that? It's just like we have deep roots in sport, mm-hmm. deep roots in fashion, and we have deep roots that connect to culture. Yeah. Whether it's 90s or any other time period right. over the history of the brand. If you don't know, now you know. Here's a little inside knowledge from Lou on how the art of collaboration works. There's a full system between the brand and the factories and how collabs play a very specific role, especially when used as a tool to help build a brand back up, like Fila at the time. But when you pump out too much product, as many of you know, that's when you lose that mystique or hype. These were valuable lessons for Lou, lessons that helped him shape a perspective that's in tune with not only what's cool out on the streets, but also what's necessary for growth at the brand. Lou knew that if you made it too big, the bubble would burst. And if you kept it too small, the business would die because it'd be running on fumes. Lou could have taken the frustration and turned that into a negative for his own career. But what he did was apply that learning and pivot it to the next phase of his career. Again, review your past and assess it. Really look at yourself hard in the mirror. And instead of using a loss to put yourself down, use that newfound knowledge to level up to the next degree. And in many ways, like those knocks that you were taking, the other thing that was happening, it seems, is you and John's relationship was like forming a yin-yang right like 100% yeah like what you were bringing to the table John didn't know and what John was bringing to the table at first you might have been like why John but like you were learning at the time too 100% yeah. i mean and and he knows a lot more than me so yeah. i was just trying to give him some insight yeah uh, from from the ground from a young 30 something year old mm-hmm. pov that's going to cool parties and going to all these things and seeing what my counterparts are are into 
yeah. what they're what they're digesting, how they're reacting to brands, and how things are totally changing in the market. Mm-hmm. Like we saw the speed of the market start to gradually get faster and faster yeah. and faster. We also were at the height of um, you know Topshop and H and M. These fast, fast fashion. fashion. Empty, what I call empty brands. Yes, they're fashionable, mm-hmm. but they don't have any. No, nah, they don't have any food. depth, right? They yeah. don't have their junk food exactly. Right. And it's a great business what they had, but they had this huge spike in the late two thousands, and everybody saw them as just some easy commodity just to eat up and go. Yeah, I think what's happened, and the reason why people always talk about this nineties resurgence mm-hmm. where we live in, and I think I think it's less about the nineties, it's more about brands with depth. Yeah, that the consumer today that's been a consumer since they were born, right. Where us, we mm-hmm. weren't, we've been a consumer since we were teens. Yeah. They've been a consumer since the age of zero, right? Right, right? And they now get to pick and choose and dissect where they want to put their time and dollars mm-hmm. and where they put their affinity and love and what they back behind. Yeah. So we had to rethink the model, right? right. Like how do we, how do we put some credibility behind the brand for someone to care, mm-hmm. right? Why would they choose Fila? Because right. it's a choice, right? Yeah. You're making a choice from us and a whole amalgam of other brands. Mm-hmm. You have to give them a clear reason why to choose and fall in love and stay in love with your brand. Right. So the goal was with John, yeah. and John backed me. I was like, John, we need to we need to really get some, we need to partner our inline product with collaborative product. Mm-hmm. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, we need to just, let me just get cultivate all these cool collabs. He's yeah. like, all right, I see that working in, you know, the Packers of the world and concepts and all mm-hmm. this stuff. And my goal was to get outside of just the sneaker hype space yeah. and actually touch things culturally. Uh, yeah, right. All, like, all these spaces, yeah. All these spaces. Like, right. where, why aren't we in, you know, restaurants and why aren't we in any other lifestyle mm-hmm. venue, right? Yeah. We could be collaborating with these partners because they own niche spaces mm-hmm. that they are... They are the it for that customer, yeah. right? That customer goes to them. Once we go and we do something with them, they now have eyeballs on us. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. only so much attention we could bring to our brand organically by just being Fila. Right. Partnering with other brands in an organic, true, authentic way is the key, right? Yeah. Like you bring them and you start bringing the attention. You start having that cadence of stories mm-hmm. that you say, okay, this is our inline product that you see in the shelves. That you could eat and digest and would do yeah. 10,000 pairs, 20,000. But then on the flip side, you also have 100 pairs here. Mm-hmm. And the way we got to doing collabs is that I kept presenting all these projects. And we kept, we kept pushing all the factories to do 100 pairs. And it was, it was getting to a point of frustration for everyone. Like, yeah. Lou, you need to stop. You're a pain in the ass. You need to stop with these collabs, <laughs> right? But John understood the, the necessity for that to grow the business. That's dope. So what we ended up doing and what he ended up leading with the with the Felix Korea team was actually developing a, a development center mm-hmm. in China, mm-hmm. and it's actually what makes our samples now actually does production runs for us. Uh, so short, I, short runs, short runs. Right. They were not there to have a profit. They were there to make samples mm-hmm. and make lose collabs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And that was literally two or three years of my life of just going back and forth to get that piece right. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't only about getting them to exit. It was also about getting them done. Yeah. Like quality control. And, right. Uh, boxes mm-hmm. and packaging. Details, yeah. All of that. Now we're at, a, we're at a great place where all of our partners and licensees around the world can tap into that center mm-hmm. to create local and domestic collabs for 
anyone's needs, right? So we actually made something that that has real core value to the brand yeah. because people now understand what collabs do for us. And now it's time for us to take it up a notch, uh-huh. right? So after we've done that, then I said, okay, we're getting all these small, small relationship-based mm-hmm. projects, right? Like I'm doing this based on people that mm-hmm. are on my phone, day, right? Yeah. Like this cool brand that's ready to pop, right. this guy that's a next artist, mm-hmm. this store that's a cool store in X, Y, and Z place, yeah. right? And then I could go to them and say, Fila, I know it's not the coolest brand that you think, but who else is going to give you a shoe? Uh-huh. Nobody. So right. we've done like dozens and dozens of collabs. Some people are like, why are you guys doing so much? Now I look back, it's like, we build credibility with the customer. Yeah. Because they saw that we were willing to be outside mm-hmm. of what our white navy red, traditional sales, traditional trend that's on the wall. Because when you're on the wall, you kind of get lost in a sea of other brands. Yeah. How do you pop and stick out? Right. There has to be a point of reference, which is usually like a collab that takes a yeah, different- Yeah, Halo product. Yeah, Halo yeah. product that trickles down into the rest of it. But seriously, kudos to John for having the patience and the vision to like stick with it. Because you sell out 100 pairs. Not not every collab you do is a home run. Never. I mean, I would honestly say my, my batting average on collabs yeah. are pretty good. Yeah. But it's also due to the fact that other other brands mm-hmm. have a much higher quantity that they have to reach to get it done. Yeah, I've also always been totally on the other side, where if a, a retailer tells me I can knock out three thousand of these, I said let's do three hundred. <laughs> <laughs> it also gave me leverage, right? right? If we start thinking about opportunity, it gives me leverage to be like, if you knock it out the park with three hundred pairs, mm-hmm. next time we'll do four or five. Mm-hmm. And yeah. now I get them to do something else with, with us again. Yeah. Especially if it's a home run, right? Right, right. right. Um, especially if it's a good partnership and somebody we want to continue to grow with mm-hmm. commercially or just on the marketing side to do yeah. something cool with. And they're happy. So it brings it brings a good connotation and good relationship back to the brand that the brand didn't have, right? They didn't have people talking about mm-hmm. in these little micro communities talking about feeling. Right. Do you remember one that really like was a game changer for you guys? Game changer, um, there's a couple. Okay. I would I would say there's a couple of different levels because as as we evolve, the, the collab strategy continues to evolve, mm-hmm. right? So there's one we did with John Seymour at Sweet Chick. Uh-huh. That was That's something yeah. that was like who's thinking about doing something with a chicken with place. Chicken waffle <laughs> yeah, place, yeah, right? Yeah. And kudos to him for saying, Hell yeah, I want to mm-hmm. do this. And was like on it, right? There's other projects like Gosha, like we did the Gosha collab. Yeah. We uh, that was a game changer because we ended up showing at the Pity Umo show. Mm-hmm. We ended up being the only brand in the collection that they chose because there were other brands within his collection. We became the star because not only did we do footwear, we also did apparel yeah. and accessories. Did he come to you or you approached him? So that happened because I was in London with my sales rep. Mm-hmm. He had a contact at, at CDG. Yeah. So we go we go to the Comme des Garçons mm-hmm. and he's talking to the manager and he's like. He's like, I'm here with Lewis, and you know what? What can we do together? But they've always had a relationship, and I was like, dude, if you guys can make this happen, I'm totally in. Ended up talking to my guy Maddie. Mm-hmm. Maddie ended up cultivating the project, and then they came to us, and they were like, we would love to see if you guys could be a part of this. But hey, guess what? We only have like four months. Mm-hmm. And we're like, no problem. Yeah, we have our workshop. Right. The little sweet, the little secret that nobody. We have yeah, our yeah. workshop. We could turn this out over. Right. And then I go to John's like, John, we have to do this. Yeah, no question. We have to do this. Yeah, I know who's you ain't Gosha? never heard of this dude. Yeah. But who's like, Gosha? <laughs> Trust me. Right. It's under the CDG John's umbrella. Like, this doesn't say Gosha. It says something else. Yes. I'm like, no, no, that's fine. No, no, trust me. And what did they do? And what was great about that game changer is that they wanted Fila's DNA. 
Mm-hmm. They didn't want to reinterpret Fila into their own way. Yeah. They wanted Fila. Right. They wanted Fila to co-sign them, uh-huh. and, which was amazing. Yeah. They wanted a, a OGT1, uh-huh. clean, simple, premium yep. leathers with their name on it. Yeah. They wanted the most simple, most perfect time thing that we could have asked for. Mm-hmm. So that evolved the strategy, right? So went from these really small projects that are influential, what we call like feel a first. Yeah. Like we try to be the first with X partner, Y partner. Right. And we always do that in a very small, organic, niche way. The Gosha thing had us in a space that we've never been in and we've tried to dabble in. Yeah. But A, we didn't have the product, we didn't have the relationships, we didn't have the retailers, all that. Now, through Gosha and their sales network, they got us into the stores that we wanted to mm-hmm. be in. Yeah. Now, those stores are seeing success with Fila, right? Non-collab Fila, just Fila, no, right? No, Fila via Gosha. Yeah. But, at the but end now of the day, they want Fila. Now they, they want yeah. Fila, right? Yeah. They, they want it small. They want it big. I don't care how they want yeah. it. They want Fila, right? right? right. <laughs> like, even if it has Gosha's name on it, don't care. Like, they have... Yeah. This is a place that we have not been in. Right. And we have not served that customer. And were the quantities, like, pretty decent on Gosha? No, they were very good. They weren't, like, 100 units? No, no, no. These are a couple thousand okay. each. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was it was a whole product assortment, too. Yeah. We're looking at, like, three different stock, three different colorways, two style each on the footwear. You had hoodies, tees, mm-hmm. headbands, And it was on socks. every fashionista influencer. It was, Everywhere. like... Everywhere. Marketing that just pays for itself. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that was another strategy that when when I pitched to John, it was a lot of little things like don't send out seating boxes, right? Don't, don't, send, don't send out seating. For us, there was no need, right? Because what we wanted to do is seed people, mm-hmm. but those empty, those boxes that you just get that have no relationship behind it yeah. are a waste uh-huh. because the artist or the, the influencer gets it, picks out one thing, gives out the rest. You devalue your brand yeah. because you're just getting free shit. Uh-huh. Free shit is just free shit. Yeah. I don't care if it says X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. right? It's just free shit. Yeah. Nobody cares about it more than when they go to the store and they buy it yep. and they try it on and they their friends are like, that's dope, mm-hmm. right? If you just get a free box, you're like, whatever, dude, yeah. it's free box. Right. What we wanted to do and what we've pivoted is saying, you want something? Mm-hmm. X artist? Sure. What do you want? Right. Ask we'll, us. We'll give you what you want. Right, right. What did you see in the market or what would you like to see mm-hmm. that we could get for you? Word. Right? That's the way to turn it around. Now we have a continual relationship with management for that artist, direct contact with the person. Now when opportunities come up, they're like, oh, I'm doing a show here. Can you send me this? Oh, can you guys sponsor this? A lot of people want to sponsor stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is what it is. But uh-huh. at least you could build a relationship with them. Yeah. So they could come back. And they also want to be first, mm-hmm. right? Every, every artist wants to be like, I was the first that put that on. Yeah. Great. Sure. Just call us. Let right. us know what you want. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because again, it becomes the, the, the economics of it become inefficient because you're just sending out boxes hoping to get a hit mm-hmm. when you're just devaluing yeah, your you're brand. Yeah, you're fishing at right? that point. Like, yeah. yeah, it's just fishing, right? right? Right, So one of John's big things is, Lou, you have to fish where the fish are. And that's what we created. So that, that three-tier strategy, I didn't even get to the middle part yet, but you have the what I call street and emerging. Mm-hmm. Then you have the high-end fashion, which is Gosha and what we recently had with Fendi, mm-hmm. right? And the middle part is the mall. Okay. Because now we have a presence in the mall mm-hmm. and bigger chains. So we just did a Champs Times, uh, Rugrats Times Fila for Champs. Mm-hmm. So I focused really last year on executing that middle, yeah. right? That mall. Right. Because we need energy to maintain yeah. the volume of business that mm-hmm. we're getting. 
we did street and emerging. We'll continue to do that because yeah. that keeps us fresh and new and gives us credibility in the market mm -hmm. and builds relationships for people that are the next one, right? right. We always want to encourage that. Then on the high end, yeah. we're, we don't have the infrastructure to sell in that world, mm -hmm. so we let them do it. Right. We let them put a spin with the Fendi Fila logo. I remember when Fendi first dropped, no one thought it was actually real product. Yeah. They thought Fendi was knocking us off. Yep, I know. Until Fendi started to see the success and came back to us like we need a we need a second we need a second round of this. Uh -huh. And then that's when the story started getting out. And then you see product in Neiman Marcus and Yeah. Bergdorf and everywhere. It's almost like the, the silence of that project is what did it like the best. You hit it on the head. The right? silence just, let's of just it, keep it quiet. Because most brands, no shots, but they overpromote. Mm -hmm. They oversell. Because all they want is that commercial return. Yeah. We were just looking for a brand return. Mm -hmm. So we said, if we put ourselves in parallel with Chicken and Waffles yeah. to talk to them, if we put ourselves in parallel with Champs and Rugrats, mm -hmm. and we put ourselves in Fendi, with Fendi, yeah. those are all achieving the same goal with different customers, right. but still helping the brand move forward and be fresh and be new. Yeah, yeah. I think it's... A lot of people might underestimate what Fila has accomplished in this footwear world. Like, if you're at all in the footwear industry, it's almost like if you, you know, no disrespect to like a Nike and Adidas, but if you're with them, it's like the momentum train is hardcore on those on those machines, right? Like you're right. just running and like when you start thinking about wholesale distribution and how much real estate they own on like the shelves of like a Foot Locker or something like that, it's like, it's like they'd be complete morons if they lost because of how much momentum and, and power they have, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of like the politics of it. Right. You look at that same wall and you see what is the available shelf space for a non-Nike or Adidas brand. It's like three out of a hundred at some times, right? Like, For sure. It's crazy. And the fact that Fila is back now is kind of mind-blowing, you know? And I sit in a lot of marketing meetings. I sit in a lot of these like boardrooms of brands and everyone is saying the same thing. And they're like, yo, Jeff, how the fuck did Fila do it? Like, how did they do it? How did they, it was a, a sleepy brand, a, a past luxury brand, fell asleep at the wheel, then somehow came back. And everyone's trying to replicate that, like, genie in a bottle. What would you say is, like, the underlying secret sauce of how it happened? How is Fila back? I think understanding the customer mm -hmm. and where the business and the business model has changed, I think that's essential, right? That's the first two things you need to know. The third is you need great leadership. And great support, mm -hmm. right? And that that luckily happened to me during my career here at Fila yeah. with John. Mm -hmm. Like we wouldn't have been here if he didn't believe in that first nineties right. the Grand Hill too. Yep. We wouldn't be here if he didn't support collabs that were not making us money. Mm -hmm. Right. We wouldn't be here if he didn't understand the bigger picture of working with urban outfitters and Barneys and Foot Locker and understanding the commercial strategy that I learned from him. Yeah. Right. I understood I understood ways to be effective and get noticed and ways to sell product. I understood that part. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand how to actually go to the level of business where we're at now. Yeah. I had to sit and learn and listen and sit in meetings. And because of that, you know, he he made me vice president of the category mm -hmm. because he knew strategically directionally where I wanted to go and how I wanted to grow this business. Yeah. And he saw it and believed in a 30-something-year-old Puerto Rican kid from Bed-Stuy. Right. I don't know how many other... A dropout, no less. A dropout, no less. <laughs> I don't know how many other leaders in footwear 
would have given me the opportunity Word. like this. Yeah. And every day I'm proud to like make him proud. Mm-hmm. Um, he recently passed, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this this whole business and what we've evolved to is totally an homage to him. Yeah. Right? Like it's totally exactly what he saw as we're a couple weeks away from him passing. I could look back and see how he was playing chess when everyone's everyone else playing checkers. Like mm. I, I, I see it now. Yeah. I see it. And now my my goal is to continue to move this business and continue to move the brand to the next level mm-hmm. because I see the next level, yeah, right? I yeah. see it. I see the relationships we now we have with with our retail partners. I understand our leverage points in the market. Mm-hmm. I understand our opportunities in the market because yeah. it's not just product and it's not just a personality or somebody you can sign. There's also opportunities in the calendar, right? Right. There's opportunities in the calendar to be opportunistic because everyone talks about Super Bowl and Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. Memorial Weekend, back to school, taxes. This kid is not just caring about those dates. Right. This customer is on 10 hours a day on their phone. Mm-hmm. If we just say, oh, I, from what I've been told, they're not shopping, right? right? Like they don't care. Mm-hmm. No, you have to continue to bring stories, continue to open up categories because heritage, the way we built it, heritage is the umbrella for, for, the, for the category, right? Yeah. The subcategories are disruptor with your chunky bottom. Mm-hmm. You have retro running. You have fitness. You have what we're we're gonna play into trail. Mm-hmm. You have boots category, and you have all these subcategories that we could live in, and we have authenticity in. Yeah, tennis, right? Mm-hmm. Tennis is like dead out there, right? Yeah. Cup is like dead. Mm-hmm. But there's a way for us to start building credibility through some collabs, through some energy, going back to storytell about the roots of Borg and other brand plays. Yeah. So that way when we're ready, it's a platform that we're building. So that way when that look is back, mm-hmm. we could flip the switch. Right. And we could we could we could put out a hundred thousand pairs of of tennis eighty eight mm-hmm. models and boom. Yeah. Everybody's like, well, how did Fila do it? Right. And it wasn't about how we did it in three months. It's really how we did it in a long-term exactly. platform. Yeah. Because and the same opportunity happens in apparel. I've been mentioning a lot of footwear, but the same opportunity in apparel is there for us to be able to go there, carve out our niche, be a brand with more depth, but also still in parallel and in tandem, have the trend right looks, mm-hmm. styles, fabrics, and colors, and fits, more yeah. importantly. You have that, and now you're offering the brand that to a customer that has everything they're looking for. Right, <laughs> right, right. Like, oh shit, like this is a real sports brand. It's right on trend. Mm-hmm. It's cool because I saw it on my favorite person. Right. I saw it with Fendi. I saw it in this little sneaker shop I go to. Yeah. And then I also saw it in the mall. Right. Yeah. Like, holy shit, how are they doing this? Man? Right. You have to continue to stay disciplined and run those, run those different lanes in tandem and keep pushing forward. Yeah. Man, gems on gems here. Although any brand can find success today, one of the main differentiators is how quick they want to find it and how long they're willing to wait for it. Fila is without a doubt back, and there are no signs of it stopping. Their success hasn't been about how well some collabs do. Their success is simply their approach and their strategy, and it's strategically placed. As Lou laid out, Everything they've done and continue to do has been methodically thought out. A development center for more efficient short-run productions on collaborations, a more relationship-building approach to product seeding, an emphasis for product storytelling, 
This three-tiered approach of energy with street, malls, and high fashion is the recipe for success. Fila has been putting the pieces in place for a long time, and now it's time for people to take notice. If you're in the footwear industry, there's no reason not to. When you want to make a change for the brand, don't just think of a dope release. It's a full system that needs to be reworked. Think of the process and how things are done. Think of how relationships are built. And think of the different types and levels of product that should be introduced. These are today's changes for a new tomorrow. I would say also like one of the big things is patience, right? Like you mentioned, you know, this is this is a 10-year journey for you. And it it took, you know, John's patience also to like allow you to the runway to do it because I think a lot of brands what they lack is that patience and 9 out of 10 of them was like, all right, we we try to collab, we try to store SMU, right. didn't work. Let's call up, you know, whomever like DSW and exactly. let's just go let's go ham you know like, yeah let's get rid of them <laughs> yeah we can't have this sit on the wall right, we can't right. have it sit in our warehouse yeah I mean you're, you're totally right mm. I mean and we looked at those we looked at the market to evaluate how we run our business yeah through our lens and through our you know you have to give credit to everybody here that's actually working and making this happen because there's so much work that gets done mm-hmm. every day and I'm talking about it like it's just me but it's so many people that are buying into the strategy and getting on board and pushing things forward and not just having one hat. Everybody has multiple hats yeah. because you have to understand that that's the way business and this brand is now run. Mm-hmm. And that's our clear, 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 clear advantage in the market. Yeah. How many people work in this office here? In this office is about 80. Yeah. We have another back office that doubles that. Uh-huh. And that's the one in Maryland that uh, we have customer service and a yeah. warehouse. Um, but this but is like a scrappy th- operation. We're not we're not on a campus of twenty thousand no, people. Not at all. <laughs> so at when all. you say multiple hats, it's like everyone's got to do like everything. Yeah, for sure. I remember, like, if you go back to me looking for, for monster jobs, uh-huh. like I didn't care what I was doing, and yeah. I didn't care here if we have to just clean up the showroom and mm-hmm. remove samples. Like me being a VP doesn't stop me from doing any of that. You have to be in there like I'm in with each one of my sales reps or as they're talking to accounts because what these accounts need to be need to understand is that when we run as a unit mm-hmm. we're stronger than any other brand yeah. right like sales product strategy we're marketing we're all running together and I think one of our biggest challenges and what we've done to try to change the business model is because we talked about the the um the factory line right mm-hmm. how everyone knows one singular piece yeah what we've done is we changed the timeline on building product and going to market by not just thinking about things myopically like, okay, here's the here's the product piece. Mm-hmm. Product guy hands it off to the right. product manager, right? Mm-hmm. Develop designer hands it off to the to developer. Mm-hmm. Developer hands it off to the product manager. Product manager then goes, makes an assortment, hands it off to sales guys. Sales guys get it, they sell it, come back to the product managers, they make buys, then they go to marketing. Marketing says, okay, thanks. I know what you guys sold. I'll market against it. Right. We're changing that whole model. Yeah. We're doing everything front in the front of the of the of So the marketing line. knows what's going on at yes. product development level. Or you're concepting designs With based mar- on marketing. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Based you gotta have that already built in. Mm-hmm. So then yeah, when things get bought, like you're not going to come up with a go-to-market strategy on something that didn't get bought. Yeah, but at least you have a concept around it, right? Right. right. Like you're develop, you're actively developing it in season mm-hmm. to fine-tune what goes to market. Yeah, and that's how we change the 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 business model 
to be fast and react. And that was totally another John thing. Like mm. we have to be nimble and faster and react quicker than any other yeah. brand because that is our advantage. Right. We're not the big machine that that just sits there and in their silos. Exactly. Yeah. Do you remember when the the flip happened where like you were out there scraping and begging for space on a wall and for stores to pick you up? And then when it happened where like they were calling you, like instead of you constantly calling them? Totally. I mean, like if you look at the disruptor, disruptor's the shoe of the year. Yeah. There, what we on the shoe also, of the year is not said by you by Footwear News, <laughs> right? Footwear News, shoe of the year, shoe of the year, right? And there's a reason for that. It was the first shoe that was nominated and got the award, and didn't have a personality or a face behind it. Mm-hmm. So that's if you think about Stan Smith, they got the shoe of the year, Yeezy, Rihanna, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah, we were the first one without it. Mm-hmm. So, um, for, for first shoe, athletic shoe of the year. Yeah. So our, our model is totally different when we do that and how we bring it back to how we build the shoe and how we sell it is just a different, it's a different, it's a mm-hmm. different game. Yeah. And now it's, it's flipped, right? Like now it's totally flipped. So yeah. going back to like, when did that flip happen? That flip happened with the disruptor. Disruptor started getting owned and shown at all of these run the runway shows, Florence mm-hmm. and Paris fashion week. It was being adopted because that nineties culture was also, we talk about hip hop, which obviously is there, but there's also like the rave 90s culture. Yeah. Which you're starting to see more and more the now. High-rise, the right? high-rise platforms and stuff. And then you also see what Balenciaga did to the market with Chunky and how Dior came in and mm-hmm. all these brands came in with Chunky. And we offered something with the Disruptor that was authentic to the brand, that was trend right, and that we were nimble and quick to react to. Yeah. And we reacted better and we put our stamp on it. And we also did all of that legwork for building a platform through collabs and continue to tell product stories and continue to go to a fan base. And then it became shoe of the year. Yeah. Once that happened, that everyone recognized how well the shoe's selling, mm-hmm. that's, when the, that's when the turn happened. Right. Because they were like, you're not a one-trick pony. Mm-hmm. You're selling us original fitness. You're selling us basketball. Now we're selling running, retro running shoes. Yeah. We're looking to open up into like lifestyle trail. Mm-hmm. So now we become- And the apparel. And like, the apparel. Yeah. So now, you know, big logos start to hit. Mm-hmm. We're easily in that space. Yeah. So there was like this whole perfect storm. Uh-huh. And, you know, you build a brand and brands have to continue to, to do the hard work to get the shoe of the year. Yeah. But our goal is not just having shoe of the year. It's to build a platform that's sustainable. Mm-hmm. That even when you're high, your high is high doesn't just drop and you become nothing tomorrow. Yeah. You have a sustainable business and become valuable, not only to the retail partner, but to the consumer mm-hmm. because they want to follow you and want to go on this journey yeah. with you and have you in their closet. And remember when I bought, there's an emotional attachment. Be like, oh, I remember when those were hot, right? I remember when disruptors are hot. I remember yeah. when this was hot. And now they have this emotional attachment to a brand. And then as we continue to grow and progress and be different in the space, they get to just grow with us. This is major. Fila winning the sneaker of the year without a face, a partnership, or a collaboration speaks volumes of the patience game the brand is playing. They're building a foundation, a platform, to become a major player in the footwear industry again. And that is, trust me, no easy feat. Fila is obviously in great hands with Lou leading the charge. His passion is unmatched. Knowledge, sharp. And he has a willingness to never stop learning. Those are key success points. 
But what's a takeaway for you listening right now? Are you a Lewis? Or are you a John Epstein? Or are you a Gosha? Honestly, it doesn't really matter. What does matter is being able to identify which lane you feel confident in and then going in 1000% on that so that you can make the best possible contribution to the cause. Don't front on the job. And most importantly, don't front on yourself. Just be the best you that you can be. Are you, uh, are you ready for lightning round? Sure, lightning round. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So Do I'm I gonna, get a buzzer? <laughs> so I'm going to mention a couple of things, and I just want to get your insider view because you've just been living and breathing the whole footwear industry for so long. And not only do you see what's going on in, in Fila, but obviously you probably have at least one eye on everything else that's happening in the culture. So I'm going to say something. You just give me your quick like thought on it, all right? Not, not, tw- not 20 minutes, only 10 yeah, seconds? Okay, 10 seconds, all right. Um, the future of retro classics. The future of retro classics yes. is... Are we going to keep seeing this 90s thing, heritage thing? Like, Is it going to be just more brands coming out of the woodwork? Or do you think there's like a capacity level that we've hit? So I think it's a staple as far as a category, mm-hmm. but we've reached the ceiling as far as the amount of brands. Okay. So if that makes I, sense. I think a lot of um, opportunistic people see a 90s thing and they think, let's resurrect any 90s brand now. Right. It doesn't work though. It doesn't always work. Why? Why doesn't it work for some and it kills for others? Because if we go back and we look probably like five to 10 years ago and mm-hmm. we look at the run of brands that try to come back, they did the cheat code. What they were doing was <laughs> trying to collab with the best of the best, yeah. which is great, You're right? but you gave the customer a place to get this the best of the best and they didn't want anything else from your brand. Uh-huh. They didn't balance out the product offering. With the whole collection. With the whole collection. Right, right. So as if it was hitting in a great store like Kith, right? Mm-hmm. But then it wasn't hitting at Foot Locker. Right. Right? So great. You got the 500 pairs from Kith and that's it. Right. Yeah, and now and, you're those, and those are, the, you know, no shot. Those are fire. Yeah, yeah. Right? Right. But how do you balance that? Mm-hmm. You have to learn to balance that as a brand. Right. Again, they wanted to take advantage of the market. Mm-hmm. They said, wait a minute, we have a retro brand and we could... Do this really quickly. Yeah. We get the tooling done. It's already we done. We read the, the Lou Cologne bl- blueprint. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> Why can't we do this? <laughs> and and honestly, it's just they they ended up cheating themselves. Yeah. There's a lot of brands, some great brands that I I personally love mm-hmm. that that did that over the past six seven years. Yeah. And if you look at where they're at now, they they lost it. All right. They lost I got it. another follow up question. Sure. If you take any heritage brand and you apply the proper technique. And you have the patience and the wherewithal to do it right. Can you bring any heritage brand back? Or yes. some just need to be dead? I mean, it, it depends how they died, right? If they, if they, if they die with this whole big bad, neg- like, bad yeah. negative, let's take that off the table. Uh-huh. Just a brand that just died because of yeah. just bad management mm-hmm. and, and it's actually a good classic brand. Yeah. Wow. I, I, totally, think that, I totally think you could bring any All brand right. back. All right. You just have to know your lane. Yeah. And stay disciplined. And, and be you real. Could, be and, real with yeah. yourself. Yeah. And find some really good, there's some really good retail partners out there that will support you as you continue to be disciplined and mm-hmm. grow in the market. Yeah. All right. Uh, segueing into collaboration. Okay. Have we hit our max on collabs? Is it done or is it going to be forever? Collabs are forever? Collabs are forever. The, the peak of collabs we've already hit, mm-hmm. but it is a part of the business model now. It is. It is, and will forever be a part of that Word. model. What 
these well brands, put. what most brands need to do is fine tune the execution, time, bandwidth, and dollars mm -hmm. that they're putting to it and evaluate the return. So right? when you say it's part of the business, you mean like similar to how you have active heritage run, like Collabs is now like a silo of business. Well, it should be a silo underneath that silo, right? So if I say uh, retro running, so uh -huh. a great example is Mindblower. Yeah. Right? We brought out a shoe called the Mindblower, mm -hmm. did 48 collabs yep. all around the world. No one's done that. Why do 48 collabs that are all 95 pairs each? 95 because 1995. Mm -hmm. You want to have those little tidbits and yeah. little hits. How can I do it? It's because of the workshop we built, right? right. So did all of that mm -hmm. to get into the category and give ourselves credibility within retro running. Yeah. Is that the biggest commercial shoe? No. Right. But it's the start of us being in that subcategory. Yeah. So using Collab as a tool mm -hmm. to talk to you, to be in new retail, new product design, or a new category yeah. will always be there. If done right, they'll be successful. Right. If you're doing collabs for collab's sake, and that's the way you bring your brand back, mm -hmm. no one's going to care about your brand. Okay. They just care about the collab. Right. Exactly. Right? They forget about the shoes that you sell every day. Yeah. And okay. there's a lot of models in my head, but I'm not going to say those <laughs> models. <laughs> All right. The future of resale. Is resale going to impact on the brands themselves? Because I feel like right now, brands and resale is like sort of the thing that you don't talk about you just it happens oh yeah we you know we don't care about resellers right. but more and more i'm seeing especially with Foot Locker and goat and stuff like and mm -hmm. lvmh and stadium goods it's like i'm seeing brands now really caring do you see a future where reselling and the footwear brands are like hand in hand i don't think they'll ever be hand in hand mm. but i wouldn't i i would say that it is a measuring stick Mm -hmm. that, that the brands that use. every brand uses even though they whether, try they say whether they, they want to talk about it or not <laughs> i'll be the first one to say when i saw the gosha stuff resell at double it was, it's a proud moment mm -hmm. it means that the market's reacting yeah and they're reacting because you did something that's limited and scarce and they care and they want it even more mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. you can't buy that you can't right you can't fake that yeah. right so th that does become a litmus test mm -hmm. for what you're doing is right. Right. Now, do the brands and resellers partner? I don't see it because I think that entrepreneurial spirit will always be there, that gritty kid that's like, I'm flipping X to get Z and I'm going to keep moving. Mm -hmm. I think that'll always be there mm -hmm. and it's a part of the game. Um, but I don't see, I don't see right now how partners and resellers marry up. But I do know that every brand pays attention. That's for sure. Okay. Next question. Is it hype is real or is it hype versus real? Hype is real. Hype is real. Hype Explain. Is real. Um, I think hype is real because we see every day how it turns product and turns brands. So hype actually turns brands, turns money. Yep. For sure. it's, not, it's not smoke and mirrors. It's not smoke and mirrors. But the problem where your smoke and mirrors comes if is are you getting a return on the money you invested, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, there is money coming back, but is that just hitting your investment? Yeah. Or are you actually making margin on the hype that you invested in, mm -hmm. right? That's, a, that's the biggest difference. When we first started doing this, I went to John and I was clear about it. There is no return on this. <laughs> yeah. We're doing this for credibility. Your and credibility. bar of excellence is mad low. You're like, yes. we're, we're losing $500 on this. <laughs> yes. Well, we, I was always, I, I never wanted to disappoint 
the brand. Uh-huh. So I never wanted to lose money. Right. But I always made it clear that we're not going to make money. Right. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and that extra time is coming out of my sweat equity and I'm doing all of the stupid little work that gets done. Because mm-hmm. it's actually but it's good for the brand. But there's actually more work to do a collab than it is for me to put together a line. Yeah. <laughs> because there's just so much more nuance and you know egos egos and so much more <laughs> right? artists yes know, everybody wants yeah everybody wants a special package for every yeah. special thing when i was probably a pain in the ass for our fila collab <laughs> you were fine you were, <laughs> the thing is what's good about you you understood design mm-hmm. so you knew what you want and can articulate to us for us to sample it for you easier uh-huh. easier than most because right. most people like the color by numbers right like yeah <laughs> like here goes this is what i need this is the color i was looking at this material it was like you know that material by yardage? You know how much that costs? Right. How much do you want to sell the shoe for? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's go back you're to the joint reality. Yeah, right. yeah. And it's just that they're not aware. They're mm-hmm. they're consumers at the end of the yeah, day, yeah. right? So they're they're looking at a consumer POV and they want to do something cool and exclusive, but don't know the game as well as you do. So Okay, good. Good to hear I wasn't a pain in the ass. No, no, no. Uh when you meet a man or woman, do you still look at their feet first? Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you're a shoe dog. Yeah, shoe dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, yeah. You always and I'm, uh, I was walk. I was downtown. We were looking for a pop up space, uh-huh. right? And I was talking to some real estate people as we're looking for a pop up space for an activation we're doing. And I look across. I said, "This the person's like a hundred yards away." I'm like, mm-hmm. "Pick disruptors across the street." And the girl looked at me and she, she was like, "How did you see that?" I was like, "I'm always looking, right? <laughs> right, right. Like just, a radar, like, just <laughs> always looking. Like, yeah. what are they wearing? Because that's just one of the things, like." If you're in music, you're always listening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in visuals, you're always watching. Like for yeah. if you work in cars, we were talking about cars earlier. Yeah. You're paying attention to this, and right, you're. Right. If you really want to be successful, you have to be absorbed in your mm-hmm. world, hundred and ten percent. Yeah. If not, you're just you have to be honest with yourself that you're in it, mm-hmm. but you're not going to hit that level to that next level. Right. Right. So you ever yes. like you ever get into a conversation where like you can't remember a dude. But they're like, you know, the guy that was wearing the the red disruptor. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you only know them by the footwear that they wear. I've, I've been there before. <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah. like horrible. I have to meet somebody, know their shoe, and say their name twice. Right, right. If not, it's just it's yeah. not going to click. <laughs> um, before we get going, uh, is there any last words you can you can say about John? I mean, we spoke about him extensively, but like you know, he did just pass like at, at the taping of this podcast, and like what he meant to to you, to the brand. Like you know, any last words? For sure. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to speak for everyone because um, everyone had a unique relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Um, my relationship with him was something special that I always cherish. Um, he gave me an opportunity, like I mentioned, of a lifetime. Yeah. He he basically gave me my doctrine in this business, mm-hmm. and I will forever be indebted to him. Um, it's important that people recognize people that believe in you. Yeah. And you do right by them. Mm-hmm. So that is my goal. Um, and there's a whole team of people. And he, we've we've had we've hired so many more people here. And as the brand grows, you have more responsibility to people. And I see where that weight that he had on his shoulders. Yeah, I see it now. Right. So there's so many things that I've learned, and I just hope to you know keep his legacy going and keeping him proud by continuing to push what we're doing. We have an awesome team here at Fila. So when people see say how you do it, I can't honestly say it's just Lou Cologne. Um, it is a great team here that's been working and doing all the dirty work to make sure that we continue to grow and continue to, you know, 
fulfill John's legacy. So, you know, we'll forever be indebted and we love the guy. He was more than, he was more than a boss. He was a mentor. He was family. Mm -hmm. So um, the relationship I have with him is like none other. I traveled the world with this guy. Yeah. One quick example, and a lot of people don't know this. Right. So we were, we were going to see a retailer in Europe. The week of, he goes, Lou, what are you doing this week? And I said, um, not much. My wife, Kat, wants to take me out to, for my birthday on Friday or whatever. He goes, I need you to come to Europe with me. I need you to pack a bag of early heritage stuff. This is like one of dozen trips. <laughs> he goes, I need you to pack a bag that week. Uh -huh. He says, uh, Ingrid, his assistant, is going to get me a flight. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll just tell Kat, my wife, that mm -hmm. we will change plans. I'm like, sure, John, let's make it happen, right? Yeah. He goes, you know what? I'm going to use my points. I'm going to fly Kat out. Just stay for the weekend. It's on me. <laughs> Still. Like first class. Right. So do your job. But you know what? Yeah. We're going to have some fun too. We're going to have the meeting on Thursday. We're going to fly out Wednesday. We're going to knock them off of their seats yeah. with all the stuff that we're doing. And we're going to continue to push this, push this brand and get us there. And then after when I fly back home Friday, stay with your wife. That's and I'm going to fly her first class. Not an That's average president. Not an average president or person, <laughs> yeah. To, to be honest, not that like anyone I've ever met, and the relationship that he had only with me, with me, actually extended to my wife, and he actually would ask about the baby and mm -hmm. how's cat feeling. So, again, more than just your average president, yeah. He was a great person. He was family. He was a great mentor, and I owe him the world. Word. All right, man. Thank you for the interview. Cheers. Appreciate it. Yeah. Peace. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode with my man, the New York City OG, Louis Cologne of Fila. As always, you can find out more about the show and check out other episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. You can also subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to shows. I personally use Anchor FM. And if you leave a comment and tell us what you think about the show, it definitely helps out. Also, tell a friend about the show. Spread the word. Now, we occasionally answer listener questions on the show, so if you have a question, shoot it over on Twitter. I am at Jeff Staple. The Business of Hype is created in collaboration with Bright Young Things. You can check out their work at byt.nyc. Our director is Daniel Novetta. Our audio engineer is David Rogers Berry. Our associate producers are Sydney Pacumpra and Christina Hong. This episode was recorded at Sibling Rivalry Studio and on location at the FILA headquarters in New York City. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hypebeast Radio. All right, so yeah, we got a uh, you know we got John Jay. He was the creative director of Widen and Kennedy. Who I don't know if you know, but he did like the NYC swoosh. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah. I have a story about that. Okay, so I told you earlier I used to go from Brooklyn to Queens in Astoria every day. Mm -hmm. So what I used to do was <laughs> I ended up my parents have a brownstone. I ended up my cousin ended up living with us, so I lived in the basement with my cousin. Right, okay. and we were just. <laughs> Pool table, just being teenagers and having friends over. Yeah. But my whole wall, all my walls, were every piece of that NYC campaign. Nike campaign. So I would go on trains, and I would just be there, and I would start out, start snapping. 
you know, with the plastic thing that held up all the ads. Yep. I would snap those off, mm -hmm. look around, wait for somebody to get on, <laughs> wait for somebody to get off, snap the other side, wait for somebody to get, wait for to get off because you don't get caught by the cops. Yeah. I'm not trying to get in trouble by my parents. Right. And then start peeling it out, slide it out, roll it up, put it in my book bag. Mm -hmm. I did that for months. I had a whole, I had, I had literally every one of the ads. Oh, yeah. I literally had every one of the ads and they were all plastered. It was the skinny guy with the arm with the basketball. It said the NYC like check. It, yeah. It was, it was awesome. I, one of my favorite campaigns of I could all time. Of, I could always think of. It has that connection with me of mm -hmm. just being that, but also knowing visually at 14, 15 years old, this is fucking awesome. Yeah. Right. Like, and this speaks to me yeah. so hardcore. Yeah. Do you remember the TV spot with Bobito? Yes. Where there were like six different people. It was all black. Mm -hmm. It was a black drop and they were doing beats. Yeah. It was Bobito and I could, I could visually see it in my head right now. And they were all dribbling. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it was all, if you, if you take out the visual, mm -hmm. it's just a, all a beat. Yeah. And you could hear the doom, 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 yep. doom, yep. doom, doom. And they were doing the whole thing. It was doing them on his back. Bob is one of, I had Bob in the magazine. He was one of the covers. Oh, okay. So I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we touched we touched on this. Yeah. So this is now taking me back to 2004 or five mm -hmm. when I when I interviewed Bob and put him on the cover and we talked about this. Wow. It's crazy. I, right? I stole those ads too, but you know I didn't steal the subway ones. You know when you enter the subway station mm -hmm. and they have they have the big ad right at the top of the stairs. Yep. I would steal those. Okay. <laughs> and you <laughs> took them from the top, right? Yeah. They're bigger. No. I, you know what I would do? I would take I take a box cutter and just I just cut, cut the plastic out. out and then just pull the whole thing up. But I had them in my room too. I need I needed it because I I had multiples because sometimes if you would slide it out uh -huh. when the door is open, it'll get ripped. Yeah. On the top part, <laughs> so you had to like slide it out. And I remember people looking. Me like, what's this kid doing? Yeah, and I'll just do it, and then they'll go to the next car. It's After crazy. We it. would risk arrest to put <laughs> up an ad in our bedroom, <laughs> an ad for a brand. Yeah, that's that was the emotional connection that we had to it, right? Because it resonated with us, and that's essentially what I've learned mm -hmm. and how we have to make it relevant to today. Yeah, those type of like key moments mm -hmm. are that like emotion, right? That emotion, because yeah. again. I chose to want that. I didn't choose the blacktop ad. I didn't choose <laughs> right. another and one. Ad, and one ad. <laughs> right. The and one mixtapes are pretty were pretty dope. They were fire. Yeah. But they, you know, <laughs> and I thought it was I thought it was a revelation when they were like on ESPN. I was yeah. Like, oh, you guys are on ESPN too? Like this right. killer, right? <laughs> um, but like that that how that resonated with me and, and you mm -hmm. to the fact that we were basically stealing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not basically. Yeah, we were, <laughs> we stealing. were stealing. We were stealing. Yeah. We were stealing, but maybe maybe that's why that that still has that yeah that brand still has that because of those moments absolutely right? so hopefully kids today get to have that moment too because yeah. <laughs> i know me and you had it and right if it, it, it was formative right like it, it yeah. made who we are and like basketball basketball culture music culture street mm -hmm. fashion that's that whole melting pot yeah that you can never say pinpoint like Oh, I'm just a sneakerhead. Oh yeah, what you didn't listen to music? Mm -hmm. Oh, you didn't weren't a fan of basketball, right? right. Like you were a part of the it's whole a mixing thing. pot, yeah. For sure. All right. I'm gonna make sure John Jay hears this. I hope <laughs> Thanks, so. Thanks, man. <laughs>